to speak might not make you intelligent, but we're going to try to prove otherwise. This is the Clashing Sabres podcast. I am one of your hosts, Brandon, and I'm here with my co-host. He's Salacious B. Crumb's hairstylist. It's... It's DeVore. See, that was kind of an intro for Drew. So, like, the people <laughs> were like, oh, my God, here comes Drew. And then they were like, even better, here comes DeVore. I, I can I like say it. that since Drew's not on the, on the show. Um, so, Drew, love you, even though... Who knows if you're going to listen to this episode or not. But on this episode, we are going to be talking about Return of the Jedi because it turned 40 on May 25th. So tonight we're going to look at my favorite Star Wars movie through the lens of the big three of Han, Luke, and Leia. uh, And just kind of see how their journey went and how it evolved through the different stages of the film. But before we get into that, DeVore, I wanted to talk to you about your personal relationship with Return of the Jedi, because people know uh, that it is my favorite film, uh, that I have an obsession with the throne room, which we will get to later. And uh, if you're a longtime listener, you may recall that I used to pretend to be sick so that I could stay home from school and watch Return of the Jedi on repeat. So, uh, for you, I know you, you recently went and saw it for the, the re-release, the 40th anniversary. Uh, what was your relationship with Return of the Jedi growing up, and where does it stand for you right now? So, I don't remember the first time that I saw it. I mean, I have a distinct memory, for instance, of the original trilogy. I have a distinct memory of the first time that I watched A New Hope. Empire and Jedi are both a little fuzzier. As far as I know, I saw both of them them before the phantom menace came out so it would have been somewhere in that what would have been like year or two between the first time i saw phantom menace and then the release of or sorry the first time that i saw a new hope and then the release of phantom menace generally speaking for me you know you just mentioned that it's your favorite of the star wars movies generally for me it's ranked lower than that uh it's usually somewhere in the middle you know, you just mentioned it and, you know, we'll talk about it a lot. The stuff on the Death Star 2 in the throne room, like that's really the meaty stuff that I love in this movie and the things that that, that really get me going about it. The other stuff I've always been a little like less hot on. But as you mentioned, I just seen or we had just seen not that long ago. Return of the Jedi in theaters. And that was quite an eye opening experience There's something about just having seen it on the big screen that just made the whole movie pop in a way that it never had before. Yeah, the last time I saw uh, Return of the Jedi prior to to watching it for this uh, this show was when I went and saw it for the symphony. So, you know, they have... Have you ever done one of those where the, the Star Wars at the symphony... Not for a Star Wars, but I okay. have done it before. So you know the experience. And so they've yeah. got the you know the big screen and everything like that. And it was kind of uh, my, my last one that I needed to see on the big screen. I remember, I now remember seeing every Star Wars movie on the big screen except for Revenge of the Sith. I know I went to Revenge of the Sith. I just don't actually recall being there. The other ones I can recall actually like sitting in the theater. And um, so actually like right 
around when COVID first started to let up, there was a local theater that uh, was showing Empire Strikes Back and they could do it because the seats were extremely, you had like basically your own booth. And so the the seats were extremely um, spread out. So I was like, all right, cool. Now I only have to see Return of the Jedi. And I didn't get to see it for the the re-release, but to be able to see it with the symphony there and everything like that, it was a, it was a different kind of experience. And, you know, you're not in a dark room like you are with, you know, seeing it in movie theater. So it wasn't the exact same experience, but it does remind you that like these movies are made for cinema. You know, we watch them nowadays on our iPads, our phones, you know, whatever. And yes, a lot of us who are, are big into the fandom are, you know, having it on in the background or whatever it may be, or watching it in bits and pieces like I did to, to take notes for this show. But it is a different experience when you just sit down and allow uh, allow the movie to engulf you like that. What's like the movie that you feel like does the best job of that? Like which Star Wars movie do you feel like just sucks you in? And if you don't see it in the theater, you're really missing a whole lot. Oh, that's a good question. I mean, Drew and I talked a little bit about this in terms of what what we thought about the best kind of big screen Star Wars movie is. And I think for my money, it's Revenge of the Sith, just because you got a lot of those big battles and those big set pieces. But I think another one that came to mind as you were asking the question, particularly for that first part, that like the sort of like sucks you in and grabs you there would probably be, be Force Awakens. Mm-hmm. Like Force Awakens is a really good big screen Star Wars movie. Yeah. Just because particularly the way that it's paced, that the movie just really kind of kicks off and then doesn't let you go all the way until the end, more or less. And it's got the Rathtar spot right in the perfect place to go to the bathroom, so you've got that yes. going for it. <laughs> that, that, that is your bathroom break spot. You're 100% correct. <laughs> oh, man. I love this music that goes with the Rathtars. I just... And and the scene is fine. I just... I, I, I'm not a big, big fan of that particular scene. But yeah, no, like, that movie... I rewatch that movie sometimes and I'm like, I forgot how freaking good this movie is. Yeah. Like, listen, like all Star Wars movies have their criticism. Even Return of the Jedi, like I recognize the flaws in this movie. It is my personal favorite. It, I'm not saying that it is the best Star Wars film objectively. Um, but man, Force Awakens is just on another level. And even... I think the thing that amazed me most, and I think I talked with Drew about this at, when we were at Celebration. I was watching it. Uh, his kids picked out the movie, and they wanted to watch The Force Awakens. So we were sitting watching it, and he's just like, man, this movie is just so good. I'm like, I honestly forget how good it is sometimes, and it's crazy to think that everything surrounding The Last Jedi and Rise of Skywalker did not impact how good that movie is. Like, yeah. that movie stands up, even though... There's controversy around The Last Jedi and people didn't necessarily like its direction. Uh, and so whether you're on on you know my side of it's a great movie or the other side, like I think you can watch The Force Awakens without having to think about that. And the same thing with Rise of Skywalker. It, it got very mixed reactions. And yet you can still, you can watch that movie knowing who Rey is. You can watch that movie knowing what happens to Kylo and, and, and everything and still just be like, but this one works. And it's just crazy how the first movie in that trilogy just kind of hit the same notes. And yes, I know the whole like, oh, it is A New Hope just remade. But I mean, if you've got the secret sauce, I don't see the point in not, <laughs> yes. not using it. So what is your, your favorite Star Wars movie? Like your personal oh. favorite, not the one you think is the best. 
my personal favorite. Uh, that's a good. I, it, it might be the Force Awakens. It's just a yeah. lot of fun. Yeah, it's a ride, man. It is a very good ride. Like it is definitely one. I don't know about you. I have like what I call my cotton candy Star Wars movies that I can just like mm-hmm. have on and not have to pay attention to. Just feel good and like. Attack of the Clones is that, and Solo is, well, Solo, sometimes I watch, but Solo is that, and it's usually, like, the ones, Rise of Skywalker, usually the ones that would be near the bottom of my list, which, like, I still love, but I don't obsess over digesting. I don't think I can just put The Force Awakens on and not be completely consumed by it, but... We will talk more about Force Awakens another time, because tonight we are going to be talking about Return of the Jedi, and we have an entire movie to get through, so I want to give us plenty of time to do that. So we are going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we will celebrate my favorite Star Wars movie, and Devor's not the only favorite Star Wars movie. Return for the climactic clash between the forces of good and evil. Return to a galaxy far, far away. Return of the Jedi. The next chapter in the continuing Star Wars saga. The battle for freedom rages on. The heart of a hero. The courage of a rebel. The strength of a leader. The loyalty of comrades. The power of the Force. The cunning of the enemy. Destiny revealed. Is Darth Vader my father? A legend fulfilled. An epic of heroes, villains, and aliens from a thousand worlds. Did you crap? The quest continues. The circle closes. The saga lives on. Return of the Jedi begins May 25th at a theater in your galaxy. Welcome back, everyone. As I said earlier, tonight we're going to be talking about Return of the Jedi and looking at it through the lens of the big three, our main protagonists of Han, Luke, and Leia. So we're not going to be looking at uh, every single thing that happens in the film. We're really going to focus on the character stories of those three, the, the ones who, at the time of making this film, it was the culmination of their story. So in order to do that, uh, we're going to look at different sections of the film and look at their relationships, uh, the character direction, and, and more stuff like that. So for our conversation, I broke the film into four parts while I was watching it. And you have the first you know, uh, hour and 30 minutes at Jabba's Palace. Uh, then you have Luke visiting Yoda for about 30 seconds. And then you have Endor and the Ewoks and the throne room and the end battle. So that's how we're going to kind of work our way through the film. And we're going to start with Jabba's Palace. And I've got to say, divorce. something that stood out to me this time that I've never really noticed before is that when Luke first appears as a hologram, he's trying to negotiate with Jabba, which is 
very Kenobi of him. Like he's yes. being the negotiator, Obi-Wan Kenobi. And just for all the talk of people saying, you know, how close he was to turning to the dark side and everything in that scene. And I, I get that and everything. But I just I I loved it. I that that's where I wanted to start. What do you think about the first appearance of Luke as a hologram, uh, as the intro of our our main hero into this film? Yeah, it really does. Both of the introductions of Luke, both him in the hologram and then ultimately when we actually see him physically in Jabba's palace, they do a really good job of communicating in a very short amount of time. Again, largely through kind of show rather than tell of how much Luke has evolved between the last time that you see him in Empire. Like if you just look at that hologram, for example, that first kind of introduction to Luke, you see, one, you see that he's already dressed sort of differently. You can't, like, totally make out that it's the black robes that you when you see him in person. But you just see in terms of his demeanor, in terms of the way that he's speaking, like, he is kind of conveying this more sort of, as you mentioned, the negotiator, somewhat more mature, more stately person. And so I think it does a really good job of that. He's saying, like, okay, he's really kind of progressed in his you know in his training in his journey as a jedi so and you're absolutely allowed to judge me for this um when i was a kid i did not get that he was turning like that he was touching the dark side in that scene like to me he just looked really cool in black and was really in control of the situation like i did not make the connection of oh he's force choking somebody and jedi shouldn't be threatening to kill like to me now obviously being able to be more mature and actually understand what the hell's going on like luke's ability to kill in this beginning portion whether it be the rancor or his threats to jabba you know like he doesn't necessarily pull the trigger on jabba but he's basically saying like i'm gonna you know one way or another you're gonna die if you mess with me it builds the tension later so beautifully because we know that luke could actually kill so when he's beating vader down like we've seen him kill the rancor we've seen him uh you know threaten jabba we've seen him of course you know uh, killing people on the sail barge to me is not as bad because like he's defending himself and everything and it's not yeah. just malicious murder uh but regardless like it, it does help establish that aspect of luke's character and so it's much more believable later on when he does you know stand over vader and he's about you know one swing away from killing him yeah, I would agree. Yeah, I, th- I think you definitely see a Luke in, you know, in a lot of the Jabba's Palace su- scenes, you see a Luke that is much more, on the one end, as we just talked about, like, uh, much more sort of confident, mature, but also more assertive. You know, he talks about, like, he's like, you can profit by this or be destroyed. It's your choice. But I warn you not to underestimate my my abilities or my powers, whatever the line is. So you see him much more, like, bringing forward saying, like, I'm... Like, I'm strong, I have these abilities, do what I want, don't mess with me. So, yeah, like, much more assertive in that way, far more than anything we see in either A New Hope or Empire. The stuff that we definitely see of of Anakin in the prequels, you know, like, yeah. that's... And even more so in the Clone Wars. I wonder, in the Clone Wars, do we ever see Yoda or Obi-Wan or anybody act in that kind of fashion of, like giving an ultimatum of do this or you die. Like, I can't think of anything. Because I know we kind of crap on the the prequel Jedi and their failures and everything, and, and they definitely 
you know, have failures, but there's a lot of good about their characters. And I just don't ever recall any of them acting in this kind of manner, other than Anakin, of course. Yeah, I, I can't think of any examples off the top of my head from that period. I mean, there are other parallel examples that we've seen. Like, I remember a, a, a Star Wars moment that directly in my brain kind of brought me back to thinking about Luke and Jabba's palace was the first time I watched the Mandalorian episode, The Jedi. And in that opening scene when Ahsoka is outside the village and she's like talking up and she's like, you guys have 24 hours, mm. make up your mind. And like, yeah. I'll be back. And I'm, and it was the first time I watched it, I was like, oh my God, like that's Luke and Jabba's palace. That's the same, like just the ultimatum, like do what I'm telling you to do or else. That's true. It is. Wow. You just kind of blew my mind. Now I'm questioning Ahsoka. Why did you do this to me? <laughs> or even like, you know, going back to the end of last year when we did our Tales of the Jedi episode, that first Dooku short when mm. he goes to that village and he just puts the lightsaber on the table. Yeah. So you do get those moments where like Jedi are like, look, like here I am, like I, I've got a mission, like you're gonna help me out. So for Dooku, I feel like that is a a threat of murder. Like for Ashoka, yeah. do you do you think it's the same kind of thing where it is like here I think it's meant to show Luke getting pulled toward the dark side and and being willing to sacrifice uh, the morals that he should have a little bit, which is something that we'll talk about later when we get into the throne room and everything. But do you think Ahsoka is is doing it the same way? Is there an intention behind, like, the, is there a difference in the intention behind how Ahsoka is doing it and how Luke is doing it? I don't know, possibly. I mean, there is a, I mean, I, I think probably in the, you know, in the Ahsoka case, it might be coming from a standpoint of I'm not just like I'm not going to come into the village and just start wantingly, you know, slaughtering everybody. But, you know, I will defend what's right and I will do, you know, what I have to to make sure that you know, peace and justice are, uh, you know, upheld here. Yeah. Yeah. I'll have to rewatch it. That's man. You got me thinking. Um, so overall, you know, this is this does feel like kind of a a side adventure like we have to get han back but as i was watching it this time and really looking at these characters and their arcs to me i saw a lot of foreshadowing of what's going to happen later in the film and there's two points in particular first is when leia is letting han out of the carbonite um and she's holding him in the same way that luke will later hold on to vader uh, or mm -hmm. Anakin at that time. And, and in both situations, you have a masked Skywalker, even though they the masked Skywalker is flipped. You have someone who loves someone else. Uh, you have them rescuing. You have someone who uh, is trying to see with their own eyes, uh, Han trying to see Leia, Anakin trying to see, see Luke there. And then um, you have Luke killing the Rancor, which to me foreshadows the Empire and Ewoks later on with the, the Rancor being the Empire, Luke being the Ewoks. You know, you have this, this undersized force taking on a bigger power, but you also have uh, somebody using nature in their surroundings, you know, Luke with the rock and, of course, the Ewoks with their trees and everything like that, um, overcoming a stronger force. And then you have Jabba watching it happen like Palpatine watches it later. So 
my first question is, do you pick up on these same kind of uh, allusions and foreshadows to later in the film? And two, whether you do or not, do you think that this is something that Lucas was intentionally trying to do to set the stage for what was going to happen later in the film? Because to me, it's not something he does super often being what I would say is this direct. It's something you see in like a last Jedi a lot, but I was kind of taken aback by not having really realized these foreshadowings before really studying it and for, for prep for this episode. I never thought about some of the parallels that you had just drawn there, whether with Han and Leia or even the scene with the Rancor. I think, I think to the extent that Lucas is doing setup with these characters for later events on the road, I think it is going back to the conversation we just had. I think it is particularly the case with Luke, which is, I think this first act is setting up Lucas on the one hand, he has matured in the ways of the Jedi and his training has, you know, he, he is, he's continued training since empire and his mastery of the force has increased in the time that we since last saw him. But at the same time, there is that flirtation with the darkness. There is that, that threat of him as a Skywalker potentially following in his steps of his father. And I think particularly, you know, one parallel where you see that there is when he comes to that scene and he's negotiating with Jabba and before he gets in the Rancor, he goes and pulls the gun off one of the guards, a move that he's going to parallel when he draws the saber against Palpatine in the throne room. And we're going to come back to that moment in a little bit. Oh, that's so good. I want to talk about that. And about like in the context of what's happening in the throne room. So I think in terms of to the extent that scene is doing setup, I think it is really there for Luke. We're showing that tension of like, on the one hand, he is meant to be this embodiment of we are now meant to see him as the kind of as as the model of Jedi or like the kind of ascendant Jedi now that both Ben Kenobi is gone. And as we will soon see, Yoda will himself also be gone. But also there is a danger there, whether it is in the pulling of the gun, the force choking and all of these moments that we are seeing that there is this possibility there that he might go in a different direction. Yeah, I mean, I hadn't thought about the the pulling of the gun as a foreshadow, uh, but it's kind of interesting to think about, you know, you have Luke and you're setting up all of these things for this conflict you're going to have later on and on the flip side for Han and Leia I know a a lot of people complain about um, how they don't really have a lot to do in this movie I don't necessarily agree with that but there is the the growth for those two characters is much more subtle like I think Han it you see it primarily when he's saving Lando like I think that shows a lot of character development for him back into that good guy that we saw in Solo because in the context of the film, I'm not sure if there's, you know, maybe comics about what happened in between, you know, when they took them off and when they, they go to the sail barge. But in the context of the film, we don't have anything saying that Han knows Lando is helping. So the last time that Lando was around, as far as Han is concerned, was the betrayal. So he really has no reason when, when Lando falls over the side of the sail barge, he has no reason to help him, but he doesn't even second guess it. And to me, that shows, you know, like, and and we don't have anything. We have in Solo them kind of forming a connection, but we don't have them really being friends. That's one thing we don't really have much of except for after 
uh, Return of the Jedi. You know, like last shot shows them being friends. I think there's some stuff in Life Debt. Um, I'll have to ask Drew. He loves that book. Uh, <laughs> so, but to me, that just like like I know Han doesn't have a ton of character development in this movie but i think the stuff that he does have showing how far he has come because of of leia and luke is really really powerful yeah i mean i think yeah as you said han and then to to another extent leia are sort of interesting figures i mean in some ways return of the jedi is sort of the first salvo in what I think the other trilogies also end up doing to some to one degree or another in their third act, which is like there's a kind of progression across the trilogies from like you start with the, you know, the first act, whether it's Phantom Menace, A New Hope, A Force Awakens, and you have kind of a more of a kind of ensemble-ish cast. And then as you go from one to two and then two to three, the story kind of starts narrowing. So you see that in the prequels and by three, it's really kind of Anakin's story and the, you see less of the other characters, particularly Padme and then in force awaken. And then, you know, in the sequels, I think, you know, by, by rise, although it's, it's, I don't think it's as, I don't think it's as pronounced as some people who criticize Tra say, you know, it does really fo- narrow in on Ray. And then similarly, by the time you get to Jedi, it really narrows in on Luke. So you do sort of have that element that's common across the trilogies. But you're do, you are right that you, we get to see a different kind of Han in Jedi because you see it a new hope. You see the smuggler who's just out for himself, but then you get to the end, you know, like, okay, there's, there's something else going on. Like it's not just about the money for him when he, when he swoops in to save the day, then an empire, you see the guy who's on the run and he's just trying to get out from under Jabba. And then you get to Jedi and the Jabba factor is now off the table completely and he can just be kind of part of the crew and part of the rebellion. Yeah. Oh, man. I, I had never thought about it in that that aspect of uh, the three movies. But I think here, I, I think you're absolutely right on that aspect. I think one of the things that shows Han's real growth and kind of uh, encapsulates everything that you were just saying is when they're flying off from uh, Tatooine and Han says, hey, kid, now I owe you one to Luke. Mm. Because, I mean, first of all, if you do it mathematically, like Luke owed him two and Han took one. So it's technically he's Luke still owes him one. But it's like that's not the point of that moment there. To me, that is Han saying, look, kid, we're not keeping score anymore. Like, we're family. We're in this together. He's telling Luke, like, it's really like our bond is unbreakable. And, you know, watching it with the sequels in mind, that's super powerful because we know that eventually they do have a somewhat of a break. But I think if you watch Force Awakens and you see Han when he's saying, Luke, yeah, I knew Luke. Like, you can see the same kind of... uh, empathy and connection and caring for Luke that you see in this scene where he says, now I owe you one. And I, I, that to me is the punctuation of Han's character development overall. You know, you really get to see, you, you get to see it in action 
throughout the rest of the film when he, you know, decides to support the rebellion and everything like that. Um, and he starts to think of something more than himself. But to me, somebody who starts the, the story being all about the money and what he can get out of it to just say something as simple as, you know, now I owe you one. Thanks kid. Like, acknowledging that Luke who you know is having delusions of grandeur according to Han earlier in the film was the one that saved him and it wasn't luck or it wasn't anything Han did even though Han did stuff uh, just shows to me what makes Han uh, really a great character when you look at him and and his arc and him becoming a hero yeah I think it's a I think you make a great point there and even back to you know, the scene in Force Awakens that you reference, you know, when he finds Ray and Finn on the Falcon, you know, at that point he has, you know, as Leia says later, like he's kind of gone back to the only life he's known. He's gone back to kind of being a smuggler and a, a lot of the same sort of character that we see him, you know, in at the beginning of A New Hope where he's like, he's trying to make money, but then he's, you know, he, he's getting involved with all these underworld types and, you know, making all these deals and, and in debt with people. And when he meets them and they get him out, like he's ready to just kind of drop them off wherever. But once they're like, like, oh, we have the map to Luke Skywalker. He's like, okay, I'm going to get you to the resistance. As soon as it's that, that's the thing that plugs him back in. Yeah. So yeah, like, you do, you do kind of see that relationship and that, that bond and that care that he really does have for Luke. Well, it's like everything Luke does, well, not everything, but, but Luke's greatest, I guess, trigger or uh, starting gun or whatever you want to call it is Leia. You know, like we see it later in the film, which we'll talk about in the throne room. We see it in Last Jedi. Like his connection with Leia is what spurns him on. And I think thinking about what you just said and thinking about this moment in the film, Han, or excuse me, Luke is that for Han. Because I think Han sees in Luke the kid we meet in Solo at the beginning. The, mm. the less jaded character, the one who believes in the good of other people. And Han has had that weathered away over the years. And to some extent, his own fault, you know, he chose the life that he chose. We see that in Solo. Like, it's not, I don't think anybody but Han should take the brunt of the choices that he made, because I think Solo makes it very clear that he made those choices. Um, But it also makes very clear that he was the good guy and is the good guy at heart in the same way that Luke is. So I think, for Han, when he meets Luke and sees, you know, what Luke has in him and what keeps him around um, and pulls him back towards Luke is seeing that bit in himself and knowing the the life challenges that Luke is about to face, uh, especially if he's running head on into danger, which Han kind of did himself. He knows what he's about to face and he wants to be there, whether he knows it consciously or subconsciously or however it may manifest he wants to be there for luke and so to me it's really powerful to then see han be like hey thanks for being there for me it it, it kind of is like him saying you you are who i could have been and i might not be able to be that same person anymore but i'm proud of you for being that and so it would drastically uh, damage Han's psyche for Luke to feel like he was a failure in the same way that I think to some extent Han does. Like Han plays happy at the beginning of A New Hope and everything, but I think deep down, like he he has longing, he has pain, he has trauma that he has to to face. And so he he does that and he he overcomes it and 
then a part of what spurns him on in The Force Awakens then to me would be him wanting to make sure that Luke has that same opportunity to do that and to know that your trauma is not what defines you. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. I think you make a really good point there. So after Tatooine, we go and Luke visits Yoda. And I wanted to treat this as its own section of the film, even though it's short and it's not any particular act, because this it kind of stands out from the rest of the film. It does a lot of the the narrative heavy lifting and setting up of, of uh, you know, Luke confronting Vader, and then later when Luke is talking with Obi-Wan, which we'll include in, in this uh, part of things, uh, setting up, you know, Leia being his sister and everything like that. But Return of the Jedi takes place six months-ish after Empire Strikes Back, and, and we know that Luke promised Yoda he would go back. And so... Why do you think he waited six months to return to Yoda? Like, is it just, obviously, in 1983, it couldn't happen off screen, and you needed to have those two talk with each other, and we know, like, the the backstory of uh, really Luke returning to Yoda was George wanting to make sure that people knew that Vader was telling the truth about him being his father. But if we're talking in Galaxy, what do you think would be the reasoning for Luke taking that six months before he returns to Yoda uh, in these moments. The thing that immediately comes to my mind is, you know, what we get at the end of Empire, which is the the revelation about Vader being Luke's father. And, you know, you have that moment after they escape Cloud City when Luke and Vader are kind of communicating through the Force. But then Luke has this moment where he pauses and says, like, Ben, why didn't you tell me? So you can see at the end of Empire that his faith in his mentors is a little bit shaken by what has happened. You know, when he meets Ben Kenobi in A New Hope, he's given this story about the Jedi and about who his father was. And this is the thing that motivates him to ultimately leave Tatooine and to go on this journey. And then all of a sudden, he has that complete world and worldview shattered by Vader on Bespin. And so I think there was probably just a some amount of him doing some soul searching and traveling and learning on his own to kind of center some things. But then you can clearly see that, of course, you know, in the conversation that he has with Yoda, like he still has uncertainties. He's not totally sure that what Vader told him was the truth. He needs that validation from Yoda about that. And so he's going there it's part he's partly coming there to complete his training but partly there i get a sense particularly when they have that conversation about vader is that there is from his point of view some kind of like a reconciliation where he's kind of coming there like okay let's be like totally frank with one another about what's going on here yeah yeah and i guess maybe it took him time to come to that and like you said doing soul searching and everything like that because he does come to Yoda and he says, you know, but I need your help. I've come back to complete the training. So it would make sense. The, the, but I need your help would be him trying to find that truth. And we don't know if, if this has happened in the comics or anything like that, like hit us up on Twitter at clashing sabers, but we don't have that. The, the communication has continued between Luke and Vader during that time. I know there's like uh, deleted scenes of it and everything, but canonically we don't have that. So you've got to think, 
for the most part, like Luke is out on his own. Uh, he's he's trying to figure out what it means to be a Jedi. Still, he we don't know really how much training he has. It's not very clear in Empire, like how long he was there. So he, yeah, maybe he's just trying to find it within himself. Maybe, maybe he's trying to figure out like how to ask the question. Almost, you know, like when you have yeah. a mentor that you. You know you're going to bring up a subject that could break your relationship, but it's something you have to talk about. Like, it becomes really challenging. And I think he comes to a very Anakin singular uh, approach to it because he says to Yoda, he says you can't die, which is like Anakin's inability to let go. And then he says, I've come back to complete the training. And that the stood out to me because it's Luke still thinking that being a Jedi has like a singular path, which is kind of what Anakin um, wanted there to be, even though at the same time he kind of rebelled against the idea of Jedi being a certain way. But Luke is still stuck in this, there's this singular way to become a Jedi, and I need to be a Jedi to to be able to defeat Vader and, and to face this truth. But Yoda has evolved to see the plurality of what it means to be a, a Jedi. And so he knows that he can leave Luke and Luke will find his own path because the mistake that he made with Anakin was not allowing him to find his own path. And so I wonder in that meantime there, like what brought Luke to finally be able to say, okay, I need to, to talk with Yoda about this now at this time. And also what made, what, makes him believe that there is still only this one path to become a Jedi when he has kind of started to see that his mentors, although they push him and although they inspire him and, and teach him, they're not perfect. So why would he come back and have this idea that I can only learn from you following this way? Yeah, it's a good point. And I think particularly when, you know, when Luke comes back and, you know, they, you know, he says, like, I've come back to complete the training. I think the way that I've always interpreted that and the exchange, I'll just, uh, you know, I'll mention a sec what Yoda's reply is there because I think it's important. I think Luke also has a particular conception in his mind about what it means to be a Jedi about like, oh, it's about mastering a certain set of skills and abilities because of course you know th that, that's a lot of what was happening in his time in Dagobah and Empire I mean Yoda was also telling him about the nature of the force but you know he was having him do like flips and jumps and all that and of course you know Yoda's reply when Luke tells him that like I've come back to complete the training he says no more training do you require already know you that which you need and so like there's a little bit of Luke Yoda there trying to say like like what you need to be a Jedi, like it's 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 not about those kind of practical skills. It's about something kind of deeper and more elemental to who you are. That's interesting because in Jabba's palace, we see him basically emphasizing those skills. You know, mm -hmm. he's emphasizing his use of the Force, his skills with the lightsaber, um, his power and control over the situation. So, like immediately before we get this moment. He is basing everything on those skills that he learned from Yoda, you know, like, uh, and and then now Yoda's telling him there's there's something more there, and that and I like that I like that interpretation of it because I also find it really fascinating, you know, you have Yoda also saying once you start down the dark path, forever will it dominate your destiny, which like we look at this now what. 40 something years later and we think well obviously that's not true 
but I kind of think it is because to me, what, what Yoda is telling Luke is that once you let that darkness in, you will spend forever fighting against it. And Luke is continually having to confront that darkness. I don't necessarily think Yoda is telling him that there is a path wherein you never confront the darkness or that there is no darkness to your path or anything like that. Like we see Yoda confronting his own darkness in the Clone Wars. We see, you know, Yoda chose a planet where there and he's living by somewhere where there is a strong uh, dark side cave there. So I don't think Yoda is telling him like you can avoid the darkness, but I think he's telling him it will dominate your destiny in the sense that it will the the choices you make surrounding it are going to decide which path you go down. And we see here in Return of the Jedi later in the throne room, obviously like Luke having to confront that reality uh, when he's about to kill Vader. And we see it in the hut in TLJ when he is about to, um, you know, he has that momentary instinct. He says it very clearly, like a fleeting shadow mm-hmm. of striking down Ben Solo. And he knows immediately that it was wrong. But yeah. he has to confront that darkness. And, and the fact that he had not done that well enough before he went into that hut created a scenario where he would be willing to do that. And Ben would end up seeing it. And all of the things would occur that he saw because of him and his lack of understanding that these are lessons that you continually have to learn, you know, like that's something yes. I think we as a yes. fandom had to, yes. to learn with TLJ is like, Oh, the hero's journey is a circle for a reason. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it is, you know, it, it is the case for our fictional characters. It is case for us in the real world. Very rarely is it the case that, you know, we make a certain mistake and then we're like, okay, lesson learned. I will never, you know, that, that will never happen again. Like, particularly if it is something ingrained to your own personality. And, you know, we see with Luke in Empire, in Return of the Jedi, in that flashback in Last Jedi, he has this ingrained need to, when the people he cares about are in danger, to act. Because mm-hmm. that's the thing that an empire gets him to cut the training short and go to Cloud City when Yoda and Ben are telling him, don't go, you're not ready. And he's like, but they're in danger, I gotta go. It's the thing that causes him, as we'll get to when we talk about the throne room, the thing that causes him to lash out in anger and hatred against his father and nearly kill him the way that Palpatine wants him to do. And it is going to be the thing that causes him in that moment when he goes to Ben and he senses the darkness. He's like, you know, he says like, uh, I I sense fear and anger and like the death of everything like that I love. And he just turns on that lightsaber. And it's like it's just it's just that 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 little like part of his personality, the little part of his brain. He's like the people all over in danger. I gotta act now, and right. then he has right. the moment later. He's like, oh shoot, I acted too fast. Oh no, and like what makes him a hero to me versus where Anakin is at. Not that Anakin, when he is Anakin, is a hero in a lot of aspects, but he doesn't know where that line is, and that line. He keeps pushing further and further away from himself as he goes. And when we get to uh, season five, I think it is, when he just beats the living daylights out of um, 
Oh, man, the guy that Padme used to Rush date. Rush Clovis. Rush Clovis, thank you. Like, he just completely pummels him and, and almost ends his relationship with Padme um, because of his actions. Like, that is not something that Luke would do, right? Like, Luke would put himself in that situation. He would rush to those conclusions, but he would not, like, he would be able to stop himself, and that's what makes him him a hero. It's not that he's not in those situations. It's not that he doesn't have those thoughts, like... That would make him like a, a, a god almost, and Luke is mm-hmm. is in no way a god. And and something that I've like really thought about a lot lately is people talk about oh you know Obi Wan and Yoda told Luke that he has to go and kill his father. They never say well I shouldn't say that they don't say that. Luke is the one that brings up killing Vader first. He Yoda very clearly says you must confront Vader. Confront can have a lot of interpretations, and we have nothing to believe that Yoda thinks he has to kill him. Uh, And then with uh, Ben, with Obi-Wan, he says, I can't kill my father. And then Obi-Wan says, then the Empire is already won. So I think there is an undertone for Kenobi. Yeah, for Obi-Wan, he's really, the the subtext is Obi-Wan wants him to kill Yes, but it's interesting to me, again, with that, that, Luke rushes into things that Luke is the one that brings it up first. Yeah. Something else, and, and this is kind of the last question I want to ask you before we move on to, to Endor, is regarding Obi-Wan. Because watching this after watching the Kenobi series, why do you think Obi-Wan still thinks that Luke is the only hope? Because he does say that line. He says, then the Emperor has already won. Before Luke is like, oh, but Yoda mentioned another. What's what's going on with Obi-Wan that he's like, Luke is the only one that could do this? It's a good question. I think, well, because, yes, you know, he, of course, has the whole experience with Leia and everything. I mean, there, it, it may just be a function of, like, he is thinking that Luke is the one who ended up on the Jedi path, and so ultimately it will take a Jedi to really bring an end to the Sith. Mm. That, that that the Sith is not a threat that can necessarily be extinguished by, you know, just the alliance in and of itself. So I, I think he has a particular conception or notion of how this threat has to be defeated, that it has to be, you know, kind of the light and the dark and that confrontation. That That's what I would go off of off the top of my head. I think that's why he's maybe not factoring in you know, Leia into that calculus. My tinfoil theory is that he sees the the Padme and Luke, and he sees the Anakin in uh, in Leia, and that he knows that Luke is the one that, in that moment, would be able to have the empathy for Vader because of what Leia's gone through with him. Like he straight up tortured her, blew up her planet in front of her, like. He's done a lot more to to Leia than he did to Luke. Like, he's chopped off Luke's hand and told him the truth. Like, that's what he's done to Luke. Leia, yeah. he has literally tortured. So I wonder if that's an aspect. I, th- I think it would kind of be, to me, it would be kind of a combination of, of both of those things. But, like, I do think Leia has that empathy and everything in her. And we can move on to Endor because when we first meet her, or excuse me, when she first meets Wicket, like she immediately shows the empathy and understanding and connection. And to me, we, and we haven't talked a lot about Leia in this episode so far, 
but Leia is the non-judgmental leader that that the other two that Luke and Han need to grow into who they are in this film and the moment with Wicked is kind of a microcosm of that yeah I agree I think you know she she's sort of an interesting figure because you know of course when we meet her in A New Hope on the Death Star she very much takes that kind of leadership role in there in terms of guiding the boys and then in Empire, somewhat less so. And then you know, when we get back to Jedi, she is kind of there again with, as you said, like she ends up being the sort of like the, the, the go-between with the Ewoks, right? Yeah. In that way. Um, so, yeah, I think you're right. You, you are seeing her as being the kind of, the, the, the sort of compassionate one there. And like Luke immediately shows a willingness to understand the Ewoks. Like he stops Han from, you know, his brashness of, you know, these kids are, these these teddy bears are just going to get in the way. Um, but it it's not the same as the empathy and, and the, the compassion and the connection that Leia understands because we even see Luke laugh a little bit when 3PO tells him the Ewoks think that he's a golden god. Yeah. And then when 3PO tells Han it goes against this programming to impersonate a deity. And like, Sure, maybe he's laughing at 3PO and the ridiculousness of 3PO, but in a situation like that, like I read it more as he is laughing at the absurdness of the situation, which yeah. is not showing the same understanding and, and everything that Leia has. And, and to me, it just it really shows why Luke and Han and how Luke and Han have been able to grow into the characters that they are because their whole stories center around the, you know, the choices that Leia makes in a lot of aspects, uh, whether it be, you know, her sending R2 or her getting them into the trash compactor, rushing off to the rebellion, you know, uh, Han gets caught on Hoth because she refuses to leave, you know, uh, Luke, she saves Luke because of his connection with her. So a lot of their, their story and their character arc revolves around Leia. So when people say, Oh, you know, oh, she doesn't have a lot to do in this film. I'm like, sure, but she's the one that got us to this film. Like, let's not underestimate that value that she brings. Yeah, you are right about that in the, in the sense that she is she is a driver of a lot of the plot that we see in the original trilogy. Yeah. So, do you have a lot of thoughts on the the Ewoks and everything? Because I, I mean, to me, they're fun. I love them, yub nub for life. But as far as Han, Luke, and Leia go, they don't really add much other than than that aspect of Luke being willing willing to to see where they might take them, and Leia showing that empathy. Yeah, I I, I don't think I have much to add in terms of yeah their journeys and how that intersects with with the Ewoks. They seem to sort of more play a particular role in terms of like moving the plot in a particular direction as opposed to, like, developing our characters, really with the exception of, like, getting us to see a particular side of Leia, as we just talked about. Right. So then I guess we can go before we head to the throne room, because I know we both want to get there as quickly as possible. Uh, let's go to that that platform scene, that bench scene with Luke and Leia, where he tells her uh, that she is his sister and everything like that, and she talks about remembering uh, her mother and people have a lot of different thoughts on that. I've written an entire article on my theory uh, regarding it. So 
how do you feel about that moment of Leia remembering her mother and, and how do you think that she does remember her? Like what's your interpretation of how that happens? Yeah, it's a good question because, you know, th- when, you know, when Luke asks her about whether she remembers her her real mother, which I think, like, particularly in this day and age, would be, like, a very interesting way to phrase it. Like, your mother, yeah. your real mother. And it's like, no, yeah. Brea was her real mother. Like, yeah, it's, yeah. it's just weird, but, that, but that's just, you know, th- that's just a consequence of evolving perspectives on that over time. But, yeah, you know, he, he, she says, like, she died a little when I was very young. Like, what do you remember? And then her answer is, well, just sort of images, feelings. And so you get this kind of idea that maybe, like, she that that she's not alluding to the memories that she's alluding to are not sort of actual experiences that she had with Padme, which of course you know now we know in terms of the prequel story she did not, but that she is getting something perhaps that she's in some way without realizing that she is sort of tapping into the Force in that way that 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 that, that the Force is leaving these kind of impressions or intuitions to her about her mother but that she's not really realizing that that that's what's happening and you know we see that in other cases of other characters who do something similar go back to the phantom menace when you know when we meet anakin and he's doing his pod racing and he's like oh yeah i have really quick reflexes and then qui-gon's like and it's not quick reflexes (laughs) like you're seeing things before they happen yeah so like I think maybe there's something like that with Leia happening there too, where it is in some ways that she is unconsciously, without realizing she's doing, she is tapping into this this larger mystical energy that you know binds the galaxy together. Well, you bringing up Qui Gon there and the pod race makes me think of him saying, uh, "Feel, don't think, use your instincts," mm-hmm. and Leia very much does that. Like that's kind of who she is as a character. Like she is able to form these plans and these ideas and trust her instincts in part because of how she was raised, you know, Brea and, and Bale being such great parents to her and raising her uh, to be both a, a warrior and a diplomat. Um, so to me, thinking about it in that context, she would be more capable and more uh, willing to accept these realities that the force brings to her because they're going to manifest to her before she knows she has the force just as her instinct you know she says to luke like i know somehow i've always known and uh so yeah i wonder if that kind of goes together of like for her because she is like what's awesome about leia just in terms of looking at her as a hero and somebody to look up to is how she does evolve through these stories and she goes from caring only about the rebellion to caring about these people and particularly her, her love for Han. But she is already so fully formed when we meet her in a new hope that she is somebody that you can, can look up to immediately. And the same can't necessarily be said for Luke or Han. And so it's interesting to think about, okay, like what in her backstory set her up for that success that she, she has, uh, you know, later on. And I'm thinking now about, yeah, Bale and Brea were such great parents for her that she's able to, like, she's able to confront these realities that are really hard in this moment with Luke. You know, she's, she's finding out one that Vader is her real father, that this guy she made out with is her brother. Like (laughs) there's some weird stuff going on here. And she's just kind of like, yeah, I know. Uh, 
Yeah, it's, and I mean, it, it, it links up to later ways that we see Leia use the Force, which is that she taps into it in this much more kind of intuitive, empathetic way. Like, if you mm. think about, if you fast forward to the sequel trilogy, like, we get the moment, of course, in The Last Jedi when she's floating out in space after the Radis is destroyed, and then she, you know, she propels herself back inside. But for the most part, you know, we're not seeing her, like, pick up objects, lift rocks, like, open doors. It's she's having these connections. She reaches out to Ben in Rise of Skywalker. Like, she mm. has, she's she's using the force, she's tapping into it. But she's not tapping it into into it in the ways of that we might see a Luke or an Obi Wan or an Anakin do it. Yeah, and I mean, even when we see that training scene in Rise of Skywalker, we find out you know she had this vision of her son, and it caused her to to forgo the Jedi path. Like, if Luke got that vision, he's not just going and going. All right, cool. I'm going to follow this. Like, he is freaking out about it. He is going and making some rash decision, like we talked about earlier. But for Leia to just so willingly trust in this. And, you know, she honestly spent more time with Obi-Wan than Luke did. So maybe that that is an aspect of it, of, of knowing a Jedi more. And, of course, she met Kanan and Ezra and everything. Um, she's probably heard the stories from Bale. Who knows? Maybe she uh, has met Ahsoka um, through Bale, like there's a lot of possibilities about what would make her uh, more willing to trust the Force. But yeah, it is a much more natural, natural thing to her, um, which is is fascinating. It's like to me, two of the most Jedi Jedi are like two characters that would not consider themselves Jedi, which is Leia and Ahsoka. So it's just fascinating. But before we go to the throne room, I do want to talk about Han's character development because here again. We have a moment on this this uh, platform, this walkway, where it's not Han actually growing, but it's showing the growth that he's already made. And this is when he gets frustrated with Leia um, and then immediately apologizes to her. Like, he's going to walk off, and he just immediately apologizes to her. And to me, growing up as somebody, I wanted to be Han when I was growing up. I didn't actually want to mm-hmm. be Luke. Uh like that was a big deal for me and, and led to a lot of how I uh, handle and interpret conflict now and, and what I do when I make rash choices like that and get angry at somebody that I love and care about is like immediately, okay, like I'm being Han here and I've got to go back and apologize because that wasn't the right behavior to have in this situation and they obviously need something from me that I am not providing to them. So how do you feel about about that moment with Han? Yeah, you're right that you know when you see them for example interacting in Empire, they're both very, you know, confrontational and in each other's faces like you think about all the stuff on Hoth and whatnot. And once they're kind of at this point and you know, they've admitted that there's feelings there, you know, you see the way that Han is starting to to change because yeah you're right at that moment you know he he goes out there he sees that leia's upset about something and that she you know doesn't want doesn't feel like talking about it and then he it just in that moment instinctively he makes it about him because he's mm-hmm. like oh like could you tell luke is that what you could tell so he like he turns the situation to be less about you know what leia's feeling and more about like 
himself and how he's processing and then that of course makes leia more upset and then as you mentioned he doubles back and is like oh no like this isn't about me this is about her and whatever happened just now and whatever she's learned well and later in the movie he doesn't start with making it about himself when he says you know i'll uh, you love luke and she's like yes i do and he says when he gets back i'll step aside like it's all about her then like he doesn't have that this pisses me off but i'm going to it's just i know what you need i'm going to recognize you what you need and i'm going to give that that to you which again is just like the the lessons of conflict resolution that I learned from this movie alone have shaped my life. So it's it's kind of a big deal. Um, but I love that moment with them. Why do you think Leia says she can't tell Han about Luke being her brother? Because like later she does so willingly. Do you think it's just like she needs the time to process it, or does she need to see what she sees with Han in the rest of the movie before she can? fully allow herself to trust him like what do you think is happening there i think there's a couple things happening there probably there there's one i think she's still sort of processing the as you mentioned the twin revelations both that luke is her father but also that uh, sorry that luke is a brother but and also that darth vader is her father so there's both of those and then in that moment there is a lot of uncertainty about Luke's ultimate fate and whether he will return because he has that line where he tells her like if I don't make it back you're the only hope for the rebellion so there is a possibility that as as he's walking away she's thinking like this might be the last time I see him Mm. and then when you get to that later that later scene you know they're looking up at the exploding Death Star and Han's like I'm sure Luke wasn't on that and she's like yeah I know he wasn't so now there's this kind of relief like he's okay everything's all right we've won at this moment there's this big fever pitch of like oh like the the you know the the evil man in the the suit who tortured me is my dad and here's my brother and i've been reunited with him but now he's going away and i don't know if i'm gonna see him again i you know is he gonna get killed is he gonna turn it like who knows so i think there there's a greater kind of emotional intensity and it's all kind of hitting her at once i like that i like that interpretation that is my new headcanon it makes a lot of sense like it's a it's a quiet scene and Leia is such a calm and controlled person that I I think there's definitely an aspect of us as the audience where we trust her so much and we know she's going to make the right decisions that I don't want to say that there's a a disconnect but it is kind of a, a an odd moment for us where we have to go okay, what really is going on with her? Because the, the way she's acting is not how we've seen her act in a lot of the uh, the other films. And it's not to say that it's out of character, but I like what you said of just, like, there is a lot of tension, there's a lot going on, and, and she just needs that, like, when the Death Star blows, there's that relief of, okay, things are going to not necessarily, you know, remain the status quo, but we're going to still be able to be together. I'm going to get to have time with my brother to process this and everything like that. Like I can tell the man I love like that. I want to be with him, all of those things. So yeah, let's move to the throne room, which yes, if you've listened to a single episode of clashing sabers, you know, I think is the most important scene in all of cinema, uh, let alone star Wars. 
but Devor, you have you have alluded to a lot of your thoughts, so I'm going to let you take the lead on this one and tell us your thoughts about the throne room and everything that happens with Luke and Vader and Palpatine and, and just where do you want to start with that? Yeah, so the throne room, I think, is is interesting on a lot of levels. But, you know, to go back to where we started this conversation, you know, we talked about when we first see Luke at the beginning of Jabba's palace and this kind of duality of here's this on the one hand this kind of mature jedi he's advanced in this training yoda tells him oh you are a jedi you know like no more training do you require but then also there's this flirtation with with the darkness he, he he's doing all of these things we talked about them where the force choking the gamorians pulling the gun making the threats against jabba there, there's that lurking danger and that danger is also there alluded to again in dagobah both in yoda's conversation and with ben's conversation you know ben telling him like bury your feelings deep down like they do you credit but they could be made to serve the emperor so you're, you're getting those th- those two sides and so what happens in the throne room is the throne room becomes this whole kind of exploration about the nature of the dark side and i think what you start to get what starts to get revealed a little bit there is that luke there is this this threat that there's this danger that, that luke is standing on this precipice but as you come to discover i think in this throne room scene in its evolution that luke doesn't quite understand what he's totally on the precipice of because you know you have that first that kind of prelude to the throne room which is that little like walk and talk between vader and luke on endor and at one point you know that's that's where you know among other things luke reveals that he knows that his name was anakin skywalker and all that but there's this one moment where you know he's trying to get his father to kind of go away with him and turn back to the light. And Vader has that line about, you don't know the power of the dark side. And I think there is a case to be made once you see the stuff that happens next in the throne room, that Vader is right in that moment. That I think Luke gets onto the Death Star very confident and to some degree naive about the threat that he is facing. Because when you get on there and he first is presented to the Emperor and they have their first little conversation, you see that Luke is very confident there. He says, like, like you won't turn me like you did my father. Soon I'll be dead and you with me. He thinks he kind of has this in the bag a little bit. And maybe you can debate about, like, oh, is this, like, is this him kind of standing on ceremony? Or is does he have this really true confidence? But I think he is certainly presenting himself in that way. And then it is only as it moves on, and then it is, it is palpitating going like, oh, you think you have the drop on me? No, 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 no. I got the drop on you. You know, he said, it was I who allowed the Alliance to know the location of the shield generator. You know, once he reveals that all of this has been a setup and the reveal that not only does he know that the rebels are on Endor, but also that the Death Star is in fact fully armed and operational and that all of this was a trap meant to kind of lure the Alliance into this final battle. You see, as soon as that happens, what happens? Luke looks to the lightsaber next to Palpatine. He's like, you want this, don't you? As soon as that confidence is shattered, the first thing Luke does is he looks to the weapon and he says, take the weapon, like strike me down with it. Like, it's fine, do it. I can feel that anger inside you and that hatred. And it's like, there's a little bit there with the parallel of Jabba where again, like his presentation of this kind of outward confidence. And then when he's actually with Jabba and you know, he's trying to do the Jedi mind trick on Bib Fortuna, but it's not working and Jabba's not budging. He goes for the gun and that's, and then, like, that's the thing in the throne room. We talk about, you know, 
we, we look to the moment where Luke, you know, pulls the lightsaber on Vader and he goes for that, you know, the anger and aggression once Vader does the, the Leia taunt. But really, Luke falls for it twice. The first time is against Palpatine when Palpatine's like, take the lightsaber, strike me down, your journey to the dark side will be complete. And he's like, oh, he just grabs the lightsaber. And you see that like all throughout the rest of that, like he is fighting the instinct. He's trying to get away from Vader. He's like, I won't fight you. I'm not going to do this. You see that he's like, he all of a sudden realizes, oh shoot, I'm in the web. I'm in the net. And he's trying to back away from it. He's trying to, you know, fight that impulse. And then he gets just at that very end of that, very, very close to ultimately giving it away once he, you know, takes out his father. And, you know, Palpatine's like, fulfill your destiny and take your father's place at my side. And only then does he really, truly reel it back. Yeah, there's there's a lot more uh, tension in in the scenario than I think a lot of people give it credit for and like Palpatine has been in this situation before, you know, he has tempted Anakin, um, obviously like the, the opening throne room, uh, when Palpatine is captured in revenge of the Sith is, is an allusion back to this. Mm -hmm. Um, and he knows the instinct of the Skywalkers. He knows that he can manipulate them. He knows that he can get, Luke to act on that anger and and Luke does but a lot of other movies what we would see is you'd have you know let's say it's 15 minutes long you'd have 13 minutes of of Luke really getting pulled to the dark side and doing worse and worse things and then in the last moment you know he throws away the lightsaber and here there's a lot more back and forth because you you have Luke yes he's being the aggressor and and but then he goes on defense after he realizes what he has done. And then um, when he is talking uh, with Vader, he's basically saying what the Emperor is saying to Luke, but flipped. Like he's saying your thoughts betray you. He's saying he feels the good in Vader versus the anger and hate that Palpatine is saying that he feels in Luke. Uh, the Emperor is saying that he knows what Luke will do. Luke is saying he knows what Vader won't do. So... There's kind of this feeling almost of Palpatine has been here before, but Luke is learning this on the fly. And he's taking these things that he's learning and integrating them almost like right away to help make the choices that he is is making. You know, like he we see I think it's like at least two times, maybe three times him almost go to pull the lightsaber and he doesn't. And then finally it becomes too much. And then he goes and he is the aggressor in uh, regards to the duel with, with Vader. And then he starts to play defense and then he just completely refuses to fight. And then, you know, of course, obviously uh, Vader taunts Luke and then Luke, you know, beats him down, chops his hand off and is a, is a, out to kill him before he sees his own looks at his own uh droid hand that vader chopped off and, and starts to see who he's becoming so this is a much more complicated scene than i think people give it credit for like it's and it's a much more realistic scene which is funny to say about like a father and son having a sword fight in space like but it's much more realistic to the struggles that we have in our, our daily lives of it's not like a whole bunch of terrible stuff. And then the end part is where you figure it out and you become the hero. It's a lot of 
push and pull between that light and dark. And you even have that moment, which is like, now it's cliche, but it's one of my favorite shots in Star Wars of that half light, half dark uh, lighting on Luke's face. Mm -hmm. Um, It's just, it's showing like the dark side is a part of him and he has to acknowledge that. And it's not that he has to, find this balance between light and dark where he's half light and half dark and some BS gray Jedi baloney. It's understanding that that darkness is in him and is a part of him and accepting that he is not going to let that be the part that dominates him. And and that's why like that moment when he throws the lightsaber away is so powerful because that is, it's Luke, you know, confessing his love for his father. It's Luke fully becoming a Jedi and following the Jedi path. But the the thesis statement that it is is saying, we as Jedi and we as good people do not sacrifice our morals for victory. And we would rather lose and die good moral people than sacrifice those morals and what we think and what we believe in is right to some darker power just so that we can survive. Yeah, exactly. And it is also about, you know, in that moment of throwing away the lightsaber, it is, you know, touching on that kind of Star Wars motif of breaking the cycle. Because as you mentioned, you know, he chops off Vader's hand and he sees the Vader's hand as robotic and he looks at his own and he realizes that, All that is, you know, all that lies ahead if he goes down this path is just this over and over and over again. That there's no forward. You're just you're just stuck in this repeating this pattern that others have done before. And the only way is you have to find the escape. Right. And like so when he rushes off to face Vader in Empire, Yoda says to him like he's he's saying Luke is saying, uh, you know, I have to save them. Like, I've got to do it. Uh, what other choice do I have? And Yoda says to him, you know, you're not going to go and help them if you honor what they fight for, which is basically saying, like, they are doing what they need to be doing so that you can do what you need to do. And you've got to think about the bigger the bigger picture here. You've got to think beyond just the, the narrow scope of saving my friends, which is the very narrow lens that Luke is seeing it through. He's not seeing the big complicated kaleidoscope that is life. And so him throwing away that saber there after lashing out to try to save Leia, uh, he throws away the saber thinking his friends are dead. And it shows that he's learned from that mistake of rushing off to save his friends. And again, saying like he could have gotten out of there. I think he could have, obviously he could have killed Vader. Um, I think that would have taken him down a darker path. And if, if Palpatine is truly not armed, like he says, I think there is a scenario where Luke fully embraces the dark side and takes Palpatine out. I don't know if it's happening nine out of 10 times, but there is a scenario where that happens, but it's like, okay, who is Luke after that happens? He sacrificed his morals and, and he has crossed that point of no return that Anakin realizes he crossed when he sends, you know, Mace Windu out the window. And so we talk a lot about how Luke learned from the mistakes of empire, but I think this moment really shows that because it shows it's not about staying alive for some arbitrary reason. It's about the life that we live while we have it. And 
he's willing at 20 something to die to prove that point, which to me is just extremely powerful. Yeah. And I mean, to your point earlier about, you know, all the things that are happening in this scene and it being more complex than I think sometimes Star Wars fans are willing to give us give it credit for is like in in a lot of ways the way that this whole sequence is structured it is it is reinforcing that sort of star wars warning about the fact that all too often the road to hell is paved with good intentions you know that like in all these different moments whether it is when he takes the saber against the emperor when he takes it against vader they are all for motives that we might understand as good it's like he's trying to defend his friends and his sister and he's trying to defeat this ultimate evil and we can sympathize with that like that but once you do it where does that lead you next right and so his decision to ultimately step back from that to not do to not do the perhaps sort of morally understandable act of striking down this big bad evil man of his father right there when he has the opportunity he has him unarmed you know to to, to do that and you know is, is taking him away from something that would lead him into a much more immoral and monstrous place which is just like return of the jedi was great before revenge of the sith and, and the prequels and everything but it's just emphasized so much more when you when you know Anakin's story and you've seen that tragedy and how it can happen and you're able to parallel those those two things together and I really love like so the the throwing away the lightsaber is is the big moment right it's Luke mm -hmm. becoming a Jedi it's everything we often forget to talk about the things that happen after that like obviously Vader throws Palpatine over, Palpatine eats into a clone body, all of that great stuff uh, happens. But we get to that moment when Luke is, is dragging Vader to the ship, and Vader asks him to take the mask off. He's saying, no, you'll die. I can't uh, do that. There's nothing you can do to stop that. And then Luke says, no, I've got to save you. Mm -hmm. And again, this idea that we don't learn these lessons all in one fair stroke, like, Luke has saved Vader. He's done what he has come to do. But we come to find out, even in that moment, Luke didn't really understand what saving his father meant. Like, he didn't... He thought saving his father meant keeping him alive, not... The, like, he, he looked at returning Anakin to the light as something different than saving his father. And to me, that's just a, a fascinating thing, that he still wants to save him physically. And in the end after everything we've had with Anakin across these stories and Luke being our big hero of this trilogy and of the saga overall, it's Anakin. It's this gigantic failure of a Jedi who is able to teach Luke one of the most important Jedi lessons, which is it's more about who you are than whether you are alive or not. It's your impact on the people around you and you have impacted me in such a strong way that you know luke later finds out that anakin's going to be able to live on through the force like obviously he doesn't know that at that moment but to me that's just a powerful scene that we often overlook of anakin imparting at the time what we see in in the movies at when return of the jedi was the end of the story the last jedi lesson to luke um is just really cool to me 
Yeah, exactly. And I mean, it is, is shown, you know, as you were mentioning, the ways that the prequels add to it. Like, it, it is shown such a a growth and a realization for Anakin because you think about, like, in, you know, in Clones and then Revenge of the Sith, like, he's obsessed with this idea of stopping people from dying and saving people and keeping people alive. Like, you see that when, you know, when he's upset after Shmi's death, he talks about, like, I'll become the most powerful Jedi ever. Like, uh, like I'll show you, like, I'll even, I'll even find out how to stop people from dying. And, of course, that is the, the, the carrot that Palpatine dangles in front of them in Revenge of the Sith with the tragedy of Darth Plagueis the Wise. And then him going from sort of that point to in the final moments of his life saying like, you know, Luke telling him like, you'll die. He says, nothing can stop that now. Like that, that, that resignation, you know, and that, that, that kind of stoicism of, you know, realizing that it is like death is that kind of natural part of life. And it almost in a lot of ways mirrors Yoda stoicism earlier in the, in the movie when he talks about like twilight is upon me and soon night must fall. That is the way of things, the way of the force. And that kind of, that, that point that he ultimately reaches and what other Jedi reaches, you know, of that, just that sort of acceptance, like this is inevitable. Nothing can stop that. Now it is the contrast with, the Sith and the dark side of, you know, the lengths to which, you know, somebody like Palpatine is willing to go to cheat death and to extend his life. And it's like, on the one hand, yes, it is possible, you know, you can do it, but what is the cost to you as a, as, as a person at a kind of spiritual level? What do you have to do to achieve that? And ultimately, you know, you see the kind of depths to which somebody like Palpatine has to descend in order to maintain that life. So, yeah, I, th I think it is. You're absolutely right that it is this kind of important moment for for Anakin's evolution and then something that he ultimately passes on to Luke there. Oh, man, I friggin love this movie so much. It's great. Uh, that, guys, is going to bring us to the conclusion of Return of the Jedi and the end of this episode. So uh, before we head out, uh, Devor, if people want to hear more about uh, your thoughts on Return of the Jedi and all the great things that you are doing, where can they find you? All right. Well, you can find me on the Twitters at a larger view pod. You can listen to my show, a larger view of the force. And you can also listen to the podcast that I co-host with the one and only McDowell called space Swifties, a star Wars and Taylor Swift podcast, which like if there was one niche you could find of star Wars podcast <laughs> that didn't exist before you guys found it. And yep. And I'm, I'm very happy about it. So go over and listen to those shows and uh, follow Devor. If you want more Clashing Sabers, uh, you can head over to our Patreon, patreon.com slash Clashing Sabers, and support our literacy initiative and also get some uh, great content. Amanda has her first episode up there, which is an awesome interview, and we're going to have a lot more content coming uh, over the next year for you there. And if you want to uh, get notified about when shows are released or just hear our thoughts on Star Wars everything, you can follow us on all your social media uh, at Clashing Sabers and, of course, join our Facebook group. So hopefully you all enjoyed spending this time going through this awesome movie. Uh, but I want to put one thing out there before we go with regards to uh, if we ever get a super special edition of Return of the Jedi. 
because I have a request uh, of Disney and Lucasfilm. It's a small thing, but it is that they include in the movie Batch 8. Hi-ho. You don't seem as excited about it. How cool would it be <laughs> if you just had, like, the the speeder bike? You know, like, they just go off and it's go, all right, eight. Batch 8, right before he zooms off, he's like, hi-ho, shouting it away. <laughs> All Clashing Sabers productions are the intellectual property of the Clashing Sabers Network and ClashingSabers.net. All licensed sounds and images are the property of their respective copyright holders and are used for informational and educational purposes only. For more information on our nonprofit or to nominate a teacher, go to ClashingSabers.net. For questions or inquiries, please email us at ClashingSabersNetwork at gmail.com. You're just going to walk away?